Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien, in this episode. Did you know that as of the 2010 census, 80% of U.S. citizens lived in urban areas? Human beings are drawn to cities for work, culture, camaraderie, and hipster coffee shops, among other things. Every city starts somewhere, some plug along, while others take off with growth most inhabitants could never have imagined. Seattle has been both types of city, from the home of the last person leaving, turning out the lights, to construction crane magnet. Like every place, our once sleepy, now burgeoning city has its charms and its issues. So what keeps us here, specifically? A recent gathering of Seattleites addressed that question. This Why We Stayed Here event took place at Theater Off Jackson on January 17th. Sonia Harris recorded the talks. Please note, this recording contains one unedited word of an adult nature. Here, the MC, KUOW's Jeannie Yandel, introduces the stories. Before we get started, I just wanted to talk a little bit about how this idea came about. So this came from a series of discussions with uh, the Region of Boom reporting team. Hi, guys. Um, and if you listen to KUOW, you know that that team has done a lot of amazing reporting. Did you just do a one-handed clap for that team? <laughs> yeah, thank you, sir. Um, you know that they've done a lot of really wonderful reporting on how rapidly Seattle is changing and all the people who are moving here um, and the online retailer that's been a real catalyst in change and growth here in Seattle. And I'm not trying to name names or anything, you know, it rhymes with Jamazon. Um, but uh, anyway, so we have uh, storytellers who have known Seattle at all different points over the last, like, three or four decades, maybe even longer. But our first storyteller is not somebody who's known Seattle for that long. In fact, I think she's our newest arrival of all of our storytellers this evening. I'm really excited that she's here. Please welcome Jasmine Allred. When my husband and I started dating in 2013, one of the first things we seriously discussed was moving out of Phoenix, Arizona. My parents, sister, and I moved to Phoenix on January 1st, 1999. And after 17 years, the only thing I really knew was that summers were really, really hot and Mexican food was really, really good. But after being raised there, I just needed something different. So we discussed Seattle. And maybe it was the hot weather that influenced our decision to move to the rainy city. All I knew was that Seattle had always been one of the only places I'd ever wanted to live in. So you can imagine my surprise when a few months after we married, my job proposed a relocation assignment for me in Seattle. But because of our new lease, I had to decline. But one year later in 2016, when both my husband and I received relocation assignments in Seattle, at the same time our lease was expiring in Arizona, we decided to follow the obvious path God had made for us and make our move. But the road that it took to get here was windy, to say the least. 
to begin, there was a deadline to get to Seattle. It was a seven-hour parking reservation in front of our new apartment that started at 10 a.m. on December 5th. Being from Arizona, we had no idea that parking was a premium in Seattle. In our naivety, we thought we could stroll into the city, park our U-Haul, and unload our belongings, you know, like any normal cross-country move. But when we realized this wasn't the case, we paid the $100 parking reservation fee to reserve our curbside spot. And not wanting to lose that money or waste any of it by being late, we wanted to be there on time. But more important than that was the fact that parking reservations had to be made three weeks in advance. So if we missed this deadline, there was a possibility there would be no parking. So we made plans to begin our drive two days early on December 3rd. But on December 3rd at 7 a.m., my husband woke up sick. He said it was just clogged ears and stuffed nose and that because of our time constraint, we could make it. So we said goodbye to our friends and family, climbed into our U-Haul, and began the 1,400-mile drive to Seattle. Now, I can't tell you the exact time the thought popped into our mind, but suddenly we realized it was winter. And not every state is 70 degrees and warm in December. <laughs> And maybe we should check the road conditions in Washington. Needless to say, we were stunned when we realized that the Snoqualmie Pass, one of the only open roadways for us to get into the city, was hit by a snowstorm. Road conditions were rapidly worsening. The government had even issued warnings of possible road closures for the following night. Now, I am a desert girl. I have only seen snow a few times in my life. So I had no idea what a mountain pass was or even what tire chains were. But I did know that this could possibly get into the way of our reservation. So we made plans to stop at my brother-in-law's home in Utah for a quick night's rest to hopefully get an early morning start and beat the road before it closed the next day. But at 10.45 p.m., my husband's runny nose turned into a fever. He needed ibuprofen to keep his temperature down, and when I reached for his medicine bag, realized it was locked up tight somewhere in the back of the U-Haul. And the only thing that my sweet holistic brother-in-law had in his medicine cabinet was valerian root and an expectorant, <laughs> which out of desperation I gave him. It was a long night to say the least. But the following day on December 4th, my husband woke up feeling better. Snoqualmie was estimated to close that evening, and we knew we needed to make it through the pass before then to meet our parking reservation. So running on very little sleep, and despite the dangers of driving an old U-Haul through snowy conditions, we made the 14-hour drive from Utah through the Snoqualmie Pass right before the troopers closed the road. It was midnight uh, when we finally made it through, and we were exhilarated that we were going to make our reservation. So at 1.30 a.m. on December 5th, we pulled into our new little apartment to find that someone was in our designated spot. <laughs> Infuriated. Now let me explain something to you. While the designated spot technically wasn't going to be reserved until 10 a.m. that morning, let me just paint a picture. On the curbside in front of our apartment, in our area, were two large barricades, each reading, do not park. And despite those two obvious signs, that person had parked there anyway. 
we began driving around our neighborhood trying to find any spot, anything that we could squeeze our U-Haul in. But after a half hour of looking at 2 a.m. in the morning, after two full days of driving and hardly any sleep, we gave up. I began calling hotels nearby asking if they had any availability. We knew that parking was limited and wondered if they had any parking structures large enough to fit our 15-foot vehicle. Six times, I called six different hotels and heard the same answer every time. No. At this point, we were feeling dizzy, our heads were cloudy, our eyes were heavy, but I distinctly remember thinking that this is exactly what Mary and Joseph must have felt like during the nativity. <laughs> but miraculously, just like them, we found an inn 10 miles outside the city with plenty of parking and wonderful warm beds, and at 3 a.m., we fell asleep, hoping that our parking spot would be cleared by morning. But it wasn't. At 10 a.m., we found ourselves in the exact same position. That person still had not moved from our designated spot. Honestly, a part of me wanted to knock on the door of every single complex and demand this person be found, but I knew that that was impossible and that was crazy and no one would care as much as I did. So I settled on calling a tow company instead who told us that, unfortunately, because the reservation was made through the city and not through any particular company, there was nothing they could do. So my husband had to find a parking spot a half block down the road, and with his clogged ears and stuffed nose in rainy 33-degree weather, carry our moving boxes one by one to our fourth-floor apartment while I sat in the U-Haul and cried. As traffic began to accumulate on our side of the road and cyclists and pedestrians began to make their morning commute, I started second-guessing my decision, wondering if this desert girl was really cut out for the Pacific Northwest. But we stayed. Exactly 417 days later, after our 48-hour moving fiasco, although I still hold a slight grudge against that person, <laughs> here we are. We stayed because of a fresh start. We stayed because of the dewy, crisp air in the morning and the fall leaves that clutter the ground. We stayed because of the scenic walks to Lake Union and the 4th of July fireworks that light up Gasworks Park. We stayed because of the beauty of the Puget Sound and the way our hearts explode every time we emerge from the I-99 to the splendor of the Big Wheel and the Space Needle overlooking the pier. We stayed because of the sailboats that make the summers come alive and the sweet smell of rain in the winter. We stayed because of the orchids and the best breakfast burritos at Stoneway Cafe. We stayed because we're happy. And while some say that paying $1,900 a month for a studio apartment is a steep price to pay for happiness, we think it's worth it because we're home. And whether or not we're here 10 to 15 years from now doesn't really matter. What matters is the saying that home is where the heart is, and I am convinced that mine is buried somewhere deep down beneath this beautiful evergreen. Thank you. Thank you, Jasmine. You are clearly a better person than I am. I will tell you why. I would not be holding a slight grudge against that person who parks. 
I would have probably taken a photo of that person's license plate and I would have tried to figure out who that person was so I could have a conversation with that person because my grudge would have been massive. So thank you for being a better person than me, Jasmine. One of the things we did when we were preparing this show is uh, we asked people on KUOW's Facebook page the same question, um, why did you stay here? And we got a lot of responses, including one from a woman named Maynad, who um, I think you and she would have a lot in common, actually, Jasmine. This is what she wrote. She wrote, we did leave Seattle once. We moved to Houston and planned to stay through my husband's retirement. We lasted four years. It was hot, humid, smelly, and depressing beyond words. I'm sorry if anyone here is from Houston. I've never been there. I'm sure it's a lovely city. <laughs> but Maynard says, I missed the mountains. I missed the overcast days. I missed evergreen trees and seasons and the way the air smells after the rain. We sold our prior Seattle area home at the bottom of the market, and when we came back, we bought on the upswing. My house is old, and I don't particularly like it, but it's in the best place to live anywhere. And our next storyteller, I think, has something in common with Maynard, too. He also left Seattle, and this is the place where he grew up. Uh, he's now an adjunct professor at Shoreline and Edmonds Community College. Please welcome Greg Lavier. Hello, good evening. You talked about Jamazon. What about that big coffee company? Okay. <laughs> they, always get a, they always get a pass, right? <laughs> I have a lot to say about them, but that's not the, the topic today. So, <laughs> so in, 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 uh, I did come back. I came back in 2012. I had been living uh, for many years between 1989 through 2012. I lived in Japan, um, 17 of those years. So I spent um, my formative years, adult years, in Japan. And in 2012, in that summer, um, my partner and I were um, kind of contemplating, you know, where we where we go next, and made the decision that we needed to end our relationship. We'd been together for about 11 years, and we were raising a son uh, together. I had adopted a child uh, as a single parent, and I, um, my part with my partner's blessing, and we uh, raised that child together in Japan, and so. In the fall of, of um, 2012, my son and I left. Um, my son had actually come around too. I mean, I think he saw the kind of dysfunction in our relationship. And in his wisdom, his 10-year-old wisdom, he said, um, Papa, I'm okay if you want to move back to Seattle. And, you know, that just really touched my heart. And I said, okay, um, let's do it. And, but still, we left, um, you know, under very difficult circumstances. And so we arrived, and of course, as Jeannie said, I'm from here, and so I had family here, and this was really the only place that I thought of coming. And um, we arrived, uh, stayed with family for a few weeks, but I knew that I had to uh, focus on my son. I had to put my stuff aside and make sure that he was safe and was in a good place. So we came back, stayed with family for a few weeks. Um, those of you who have moved back in with family as adults know that's not optimal. And uh, it's not always a good choice. And so after a few weeks with my mother and a couple weeks with my brother, I thought, you know, we need a place of our own. I need to, um, you know, get a routine for my son. I need to get him enrolled in school. And so um, started looking for places, looked all around the Seattle area, even looked in Burien. My sister was living in Burien. Um, and I thought, 
okay, we'll find our place, you know, I'll just keep looking. And so I searched Craigslist and looked for different apartments. And at that time, you know, the rents were still reasonable. And um, I was at my brother's staying with my brother and his partner in West Seattle. And I started looking on Craigslist and I found, I just saw this picture of this brick building on Alki, the Alki Apartments, um, one of the older brick buildings down there. And they had a, a one bedroom for rent. And I just looked at the pictures and I said, that's it. <laughs> so I called the owner, I went down. Um, I said, I'll take it. <laughs> Let me write off the check, the deposit. He said, are you sure? Um, don't you want to look at a few more places? I said, I've looked. This is it. I feel comfortable here. Um, this is homey. I, I know that I can create a, a safe space for us. And so I did that. Um, got my son enrolled in Alki Elementary School. Um, I had also been offered a, a temporary position with King County Elections. I'd worked there several years before. And I thought, okay, we had some money, you know, the resettlement money, we can do this for a few months, and certainly I'll find a, a full-time job eventually. Um, so in the process of moving, I did find, um, uh, an, I had another job offer to teach up at Edmonds Community College in Linwood. And I thought, that's fine, I can do it, I can, I can do the commute. Um, and so I got my son in school, um, he seemed to adjust quite well. Um, and he's, he's very adaptable. You know, I, I adopted him at two years old from China, and you know, he went through that process, um, moving to Japan, back to the US, and back to Japan, and then back to the US. So um, you know, he, he did quite well. Um, he's also an athlete. I said, get out on the court, play basketball, play soccer. You're going to be great. He made friends. He excelled academically. And so during this, this time, um, I thought, OK. Now it's my turn. <laughs> and I started reflecting on the city that I grew up in. And I was in the perfect place. I was in, you know, living across the street from Alki, and water for me has always been very healing. And, um, and I grew up uh, with, you know, playing on the beach at Alki with my mother and siblings. And my mother uh, raised eight children, primarily on her own. And uh, we lived for most of, of my childhood in the Highland Park area of West Seattle. Yes, Highland Park is part of West Seattle. Um, <laughs> although some of the elites and Admiral will, will dispute that, but I'm here to say it is. Lisa Herbold, our District 1 rep, she lives in Highland Park. Um, <clears throat> so, um, we, um, you know, I spent a lot of time there, and, and we were wealthy, we were poor, and that was our vacation, you know, going down to Alki, you know, case of pop and uh, sandwiches in the, in the cooler. And so, you know, I started taking walks with my son on Alki at night after dinner and talking to him, telling him about, you know, my childhood and, and how we played there and grown up. And, and I just, I started to really reconnect. It was, it was a, it's spiritual for me to take a walk at, on Alki and also at Lincoln Park. We'd, we would take walks, uh, we'd, we'd park at Loman Beach. And we'd walk down the path towards the, uh, the ferry docks, and I'd tell him, I'd point out Coleman Pool. I said, my mom swam there in the 1940s. My mom grew up in Ballard. And she, her mom would pack a lunch, and she would uh, um, take the trolley and the bus down to Coleman Pool, the fresh the saltwater pool. And um, so, yeah, all these memories started coming back. And at that time, my mother um, uh, was in the early stages of dementia. And so, you know, this just became more meaningful to me, um, just being home and being with her and being with my son and reconnecting. Um, but eventually, we needed a bigger place. Um, and so we moved up the hill uh, to the Admiral District and, um, you know, paid considerably more rent. 
Um, not as much as Jasmine, but um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> when I heard that, I about fell over. But uh, I, um, and we have a two bedroom. <laughs> we don't pay as much as you do. So I guess West Yale is not as bad as I thought. So, um, so I, you know, so we moved up there and we, we ended up a block and a half from West Yale High School. And my son was at Madison Middle School by this time. And I thought, okay, um, you know, he's doing well. He continued to excel academically and, and you know, I continued to pro provide that safe space for him and the commitment to, to stay there. And he was starting to integrate into the community. For him, this was his, his home now. And um, so, um, but you know, the commute was hell some days, you know, driving up there. Depend on what my, depends on what my schedule is. The commute can be, you know, when I teach at 12.30, it's not so bad, but when I have a morning class, it's, you know, it's uh, very difficult. And so I started talking to him. I said, well, you know, for high school, what about moving up to Shoreline? And that would be a better commute for me. And he was adamant, no. So I brought, brought it up again, you know, okay, wait, a couple weeks later. They have great soccer clubs up there. He's a soccer player. Um, Shoreline's, you know, great school district. No. <laughs> Finally, it came down to, you can move, I'll stay here. <laughs> and um, my son's very, <laughs> he's like me. So um, anyway, so, so then I just, you know, I started thinking about it and I thought, you know, um, I've grown, um, grown in love, you know, with this city once more and, and um, he has as well. And I thought, you know, I need to recommit to him to uh, staying here. And so I said, okay, through high school, we'll stay through high school. He's a sophomore uh, now, and so that's about two and a half years from now. So I don't bring it up anymore, I don't talk about it. Um, I assume one day he'll go off to university, um, and then I'll decide what to do at that point. Um, but I, I feel some tension, because fortunately I live in uh, uh, an apartment with reasonable rent, and um, sorry, I'm not, that's nothing, that's <laughs> not, I'm not talking about, um, but I, I, I rent from, I rent from, um, because certainly I can't afford to buy a home in West Seattle on, on teacher's uh, salary, but um, I uh, rent from uh, a family with um, deep ties to West, West Seattle, and uh, in fact, the, the mother, a matriarch of the family, was a former teacher at Alki Elementary. She retired the year my son um, enrolled there. And they're really committed to long-term tenants. And so the rents are, you know, a couple hundred dollars under the market. And I appreciate that. I've been there, we've been there almost three years now and I've had one nominal rent increase. And, um, you know, um, it, it, you know, I'm very, I'm grateful for that. And so right now we're okay, but you know, it's, um, it's still, you know, it's, it's a much higher rent than I'd like to pay. Um, but we, I, can, I can hold that space right now. Um, but I don't know what's gonna happen in the future. I see the city changing so much, and um, especially West Seattle, I look around and I just think, gosh, you know, I used to be able to get my car and just go down California Avenue, you know, through the uh, Admiral in, in Alaska, down to Morgan, and you know, five minutes. You know, now the traffic is just <laughs> building up on California, and it's, it's just, uh, um, people are just, you know, um, you know, every, I don't know how many thousands of people are moving into the city every month, but um, yeah, so those, those are issues that, that, you know, that bother me, but um, the affordability is one of the biggest, and uh, I'm just not sure how long I'll be able to stay there, and I resent it in a way. I resent the fact that I may have be forced out of the city, and um, I have a lot to say about politics and the last mayoral campaign, but I'll, I'll spare you that. Um, <laughs> 
and about, but, I, but I'm really concerned about social justice issues. I'm concerned about who lives in the city, what they look like. Um, and so those are all issues that were raised in the campaign by the candidate I supported. She didn't win, um, but those are issues that I still care about, and I care about my son, um, what kind of city he grows up in. And you know, as a gay man raising a, a, a child, um, I want to feel comfortable. I do feel comfortable in this city, but I'm not sure what it's going to look like in 10 or 15 years. So I feel like we're at a tipping point, and we could go either way. Um, we'll see what this current administration does. We'll see what the social justice advocates do, what we demand, what we ask for. Um, and so, as I tell my students, it's not neat, it's not tidy when they write a narrative. My, I teach writing. Uh, I often have my students write an um, identity conflict resolution paper, and I teach a lot of 18, 19 year olds, and you know, they don't know anything about uh, <laughs> this type of stuff, and they're always, I don't have any issues, you know? And uh, I'm like, dig deep, dig deeper, <laughs> you know? And uh, I'm sure there's something your parents did, <laughs> you know? So um, anyway, so I, but I tell them it's okay, you know, because you're a work in process, and identity is very fluid, as you all know. And so I said, um, it's okay if you don't have a neat and tidy outcome, and that's how I feel right now. It's to be continued. And so we'll have to meet in this space in two and a half years my son graduates from college, if it's still here. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Greg. And that uncertainty, that tension that Greg talked about, um, that is certainly something that we heard from a lot of people on the Facebook page when we asked that question about you know, why you decided to stay here. We got a lot of messages about, you know, people saying, I'm not sure if I can. I want to. I don't know if I can. Um, in fact, we heard from uh, a woman named Sally who wrote, I want to stay desperately, but my landlord is selling my house in two months, so at best I'll be halving the space I now enjoy and doubling my rent. And Chloe wrote us and said, I found affordable housing for artists at the TK Artist Studios, otherwise I wouldn't be able to survive in this city even though my family has lived here for 150 years. Um, and we have another story that talks about that uncertainty, that touches on that tension about how affordable Seattle is, which, you know, spoiler alert, it's really not for a lot of people. Um, and uh, one of the things that I love about our next storyteller is she suggested that I introduce her as over-caffeinated. Um, and I have a theory about why she's over-caffeinated. It's because she works four jobs including uh, writing erotic literature and hosting an erotic, an erotic literature reading series called Bedtime Stories once a month. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Melissa Lee. Thank you. Regardless of the kind of day I'm having, whether I am ecstatic, horrifyingly sad, or somewhere in between, Every time I set foot outside of my 150 square foot apartment that I work four jobs to live in, the view of the Cascades takes my breath away. Those mountains remind me every day that I live here, that I made it. Seattle had been in my escape fantasy for the majority of my adult life. And I don't remember exactly where the idea came from but I do remember being a hairdresser in Atlanta, where I'm from, and having two clients from Seattle. 
And they spoke so highly of it that I was certain the Emerald City was the magical, enchanted forest of my dreams. <laughs> so I moved to Chicago. <laughs> I kept doing hair. I got into a relationship. And when those parts of my life got hard, I thought of how perfect my life would be if only I were in Seattle. I imagine living in a vintage apartment in Capitol Hill with a view of the Space Needle and working for myself. I came to visit here in late June of 2012, and folks, it was love at first sight. The trees, the mountains, the delicious coffee, and the lovely people. I knew I would move. I just didn't know when. In late 2014, I left my career of 15 years. I kept a handful of clients, and I started working as an art model for drawing and painting classes. My relationship was not going well, and the idea of getting a full-time job in Chicago just didn't feel right, but moving to Seattle did. So I left my relationship of five years in February, and on April 2nd, I boarded a plane to Seattle with a suitcase, two carry-ons, $1,000, and no plan. I knew one person here, and she let me stay on her couch for a week. And then after that, I started couch surfing. I picked up random modeling gigs here and there, but I plowed through that income as well as the grand that I came here with. When my bank account reached $2.68, I thought about getting a job. <laughs> I had friends in Chicago who worked for Trader Joe's, and they were reasonably happy. And I thought, it's not the beauty industry, I don't have to touch anyone, and it's work I've never done before. So I applied and was hired. I worked in the middle of the day, five days a week. So I worked a lot of 10 to 6s, 11 to 7s, and 12 to 8s. And I became reacquainted with my dislike of customer service. <laughs> So I changed my schedule to work at four in the morning, where I spend half my shift stocking shelves with my fabulous coworkers. I couch surfed for a total of four months before I found a house with three fabulous roommates. And while the desire to live alone was really loud, having an address was most important. A year went by. I fell in love with one of my coworkers. I developed kind, lovely, authentic friendships inside and outside of the store. Two of my closest friends were Trish and Lisa. And I looked forward to grocery therapy every weekend where we would work some stuff out while stocking peanut butter, maple syrup, and olive oil. <laughs> I felt so heard and loved and seen by these fabulous women. In July of 2016, Lisa was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And she was unable to work. And then in November, she was unable to care for herself. And so Trish, a handful of friends and I, all rallied to help feed her, feed her cats, and take care of her apartment. Lisa lived in a fabulous apartment in Capitol Hill with a view of the Space Needle. 
my roommates and I found out that our house was going to be torn down and we had to be out by December 31st. And so Lisa said to me, come live with me in exchange for taking care of me and you can stay until you find a place to live. And so I agreed and I moved in with her immediately. And it was such an interesting experience. It was such an honor to take care of my friend. And, that, and having that part of my escape fantasy come true, just not in the way I had expected it to. In mid-December, Lisa was having more trouble breathing than usual. And so Trish came over on December 20th to take her to Swedish to have her lungs drained. And as we were helping Lisa get into her wheelchair, Lisa looked at me and said, enjoy practicing living alone. Lisa passed away December 30th. And her sister, Rebecca, flew up from Arizona. And she told me rent was paid for until March 1st. And I was welcome to stay provided I helped to find a home for her cats and helped to donate and sell her furniture. So with the help of some of Lisa's extended family and some friends, we pulled it off. And by mid-February, it was time for me to find an apartment. And I was so happy living at Lisa's that I was determined to find my own place in Capitol Hill within walking distance of work. So I got into an apartment by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> my rent is $815. I work 35 hours at Trader Joe's, and my freelance gigs are cutting hair, art modeling, and writing erotica. And while it is barely enough to scrape by, that apartment is all mine. Most months, I choose which bills to pay and I see due dates as suggestions. <laughs> and during the tightest of months, I am surrounded by food at work and unable to shop. But I have never once considered leaving. It's as if Seattle is where my heart has always been, where I feel calm and settled where I feel held so tightly by the relationships I've developed here and the beauty of the city. And even though the escape fantasy didn't turn out exactly as I planned, my, the escape fantasy still came true. Thank you. Melissa, thank you so much. That was lovely, thank you so much. So I just want to do a, a quick, another quick poll here. So just yell it out. What's the one thing that makes you want to stay in Seattle? Beauty. Yeah, beauty, friends. I like all of this. Weather, mountains. I like all of these answers. Family. Your wife. Good answer, friend. Oh, my God. She's sitting right next to you. I mean, obviously, you're not saying that because she's sitting right next to you. So, yeah, no, good answer. Okay. Uh, what's the one thing that makes you want to leave Seattle? 
You guys, I visualized that moment, and I was like, everybody's going to yell traffic. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Um, okay. Yes, traffic. Agreed. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes. Um, I will tell you one of the things that makes me want to stay here. It's that sometimes Seattle feels like a really small town. Um, and I say this because our next storyteller is somebody that I've known for years. I've lived in Seattle for 17 years. I've known her almost the entire time I've lived here. She is, you know, not to, not, to, not to blow your head up too much, but she's one of my favorite storytellers. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bridget Quigg. Apparently Jeannie was not gonna tell you that she asked me a minute ago to come, come up here. I was like, Jeannie, I have so many stories. She's like, I got a mic, get up there. I don't know, just do it. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So um, I'm a Northwest native. How many of us are there? Okay. Born in Aberdeen, child of loggers. Okay, real deal. My mom went to high school with Kurt Cobain, so there you go. I mean, her, his dad, actually. My aunt went to, to high school with him. At any rate, I grew up here, went to college in California, and never wanted to come back because I loved California, and I loved the sun. I went to school in the Bay Area. All my friends are in San Francisco after college. Like, must, must, must stay. But I was a super weird perfectionist, and I decided I was going to go to medical school, which is a whole other story. And when you're from the Northwest and you get into UW Med School, you just go to UW Med School because it's the bomb, right? So I went, and I flunked out another long story. I was very sick. It was, it was um, uh, a grand fracasso, as they say in Spanish. <laughs> Everything that could go wrong went wrong. So it wasn't supposed to be med school. That's fine. So here I'm in Seattle, long, roundy, roundy story, living at my mom's, working as a barista for $7 an hour at Starbucks. Whoever hates Starbucks, I remember that. Yeah, I did too, but they had insurance. So like, thus begins the change. And I remember the advent of the Microsoft millionaires who were super awkward but really rich and like walked around town looking at the ground with their pockets with their hands and like didn't speak in full sentences and had a lot of money. I was had this idea, by the way, of Robin Leach in Seattle in the late 90s. Does anybody remember Robin Leach from Lifestyles of Rich and Famous? I could just see him. He's like, we're here in Seattle with the Microsoft millionaires. This man has been eating Cheetos and playing video games for exactly 24 hours. His home is vast, but not well appointed. You know, it's just like, everything about it was weird because we grew up in the 80s with lifestyles of the rich and famous and people had like white horses and stables, but no. We just had weirdo millionaires with empty homes. It's like, all right, but sound systems. So this is the beginning of like Seattle just starting to shift. So I'm all messed up, living at my mom's, trying to recover, and um, slowly start to do so, okay? So first good sign, move to Capitol Hill, like all 20-somethings, get my own little place. All right, this is where the fun starts. We're gonna talk rent and real estate prices for the rest of this story. <laughs> Capitol Hill, right around Republican Harrison, just off Broadway, at a $500 a month studio. Granted, I shared a bathroom, but it was like, it was bigger than where I live now, it was, which is not saying much. Um, which we'll get to at the end of the story. But I loved it, and it was so convenient, and um, I got working as an interpreter in hospitals so I could make a little money, I spoke Spanish. Like, things started to come together, ditched the barista job. So as I made more money, I started to save. And I had been saving for a while when, this is what you could do in Seattle back in the day, I took out enough of a loan that I was able to buy like a small condo, all right? And it was really great, and this is like when I was 28, 
and um, I was working in tech for a few years, and at the time, there was this beautiful moment where parking in Capitol Hill after five o'clock was free, number one. Who remembers that? And it was there, like you could park. There were places. Um, and then I got a, another $500 a month studio apartment up in Green Lake, and, and then, well, then I was able to buy, but it's just like everything was so beautiful for a while. And then things started to crumble a little bit, but then the, um, in terms of costs going up, but then the recession happened, right? So all the prices dropped. So in 2010, not only did I have a condo, I'd also saved up and got some money from um, some inheritance, but really was able to match it, and I bought also a house, okay? So here I am, a 30-something woman, knowing how lucky I am. I'm like, damn it, Seattle is amazing. I bought a home in the Central District, had a little condo, I had renters, like, it was very bizarre to most people my age that I had this opportunity, but Seattle was still this sort of affordable place. And I know everybody who lives here now is like, how did you do this? But this was back when there were homes, you know, around, well, still sounds like a lot to me now, but, you know, under 300,000, you could still get a home, or 300-ish, right, if you bought a fixer-upper. So um, I had all of this real estate. I had all this complicated life. I had weirdo renters who wanted to destroy it, it turned out. And that was stressful, and I did not like it. But I lived a really sweet life for a long time, like in the central part of Seattle, um, really good job in the tech industry. Like everything was so simple and um, affordable and available to me. And but I watched it start to change. And I watched the parking start to march back. Like first of all, from where you could park for free, just kept going back, back, back. So for example, I work in the international district. You used to be able to park pretty close to the international district for free like all day. Does anybody remember this? Right. And then it became like from Rainier up you could park all day for free, which it still mostly is, but it's starting to become two hour. You know how they do that? They're like, oh, it's gonna be two hour. Then you're like, no, pretty soon I'm gonna have to pay for two hours. I know you people, and it's gonna keep going up and up, and now I have to pay until 10 p.m. Parking is a real issue with me, just so you know. <laughs> I'm gonna use car to go, I promise. That's like my next step. So I got to a point where um, I decided I wanted to get out of the rat race, because the thing about affording to live here and being in tech, was that you got into that place of needing to work harder and harder and harder. We've all been there. It's the rat race. In order to afford my mortgage, to deal with like a new roof, to deal with all the realities of owning property, which is this thing that is, of course, coveted. So I got to a point where I divested, basically. Sold the condo, sold the house, not the tippy-top market stuff that everybody dreams that I would have chosen to do. I did not do that. I just like had a spiritual moment. <laughs> like I'm selling everything. And I left full-time work, and I went into freelance work, and I traveled, and I had flexibility. This is just in the last um, many years. And it was interesting because I had tried to be all these things of owning a home and having a full-time job and moving up the chain, and I realized that I didn't really like those things. So I simplified, simplified, simplified. And just to round out the story, and I'll make it quick because I didn't really plan it, but today I work 20 hours a week as a freelancer for a tech company. It's a very good job that I have. I do a lot of art stuff on the side, and I am on the same floor of the same apartment building as Melissa. <laughs> we are neighbors. Amazing. We just met while she was cooking Brussels sprouts and bacon like two days ago, and I was like, she's going to be my new best friend. And then I didn't leave a note on her door. I was going to do that. And she's like, I didn't leave a note on your door. So, but basically, when I, part of the simplifying was I'd always in my dreams, outside of wanting to be like this person who owns a home, 
on, you know, in Seattle, I just kind of wanted to live in an apartment on Capitol Hill. I think a lot of us have this fantasy, right? I want this simple life. I just want to live in an apartment. I want to walk everywhere. I just want like my simple job. And it's interesting that I'm now living in a basement apartment studio. I do not own anything in Seattle. And I've come from like the old school where everything was super affordable and available and jobs were paying a lot and rent was cheap to like everything's expensive and rent is horrible and the jobs still can pay well if you're there. But um, I'm really happy, weirdly, with how I have adjusted to Seattle. Um, and I like the simplicity of my life. And I just want to rattle off a few things that even though parking's still really expensive, I have been to lots of places and I already always wanted to be in the Bay Area and I always wanted to live abroad and I always want all these things. But nowhere, nowhere, nowhere is like Seattle. And I think you guys, a lot of you here understand this, which is, first of all, just art happening still, art happening everywhere, and a real appreciation for it, for creativity. I remember telling a friend, I was trying to describe Seattle, I was like, Seattle's the kind of town where <laughs> you could sell tickets at like, pay what you will, first of all, would be your tickets, pay what you will for my art show, and it's like people could just hang tin cans from the ceiling and like play them randomly for like two hours with maybe some random lights coming through and everybody would just be like, dude, it's fucking awesome. So, like that was so real, you know, like just really, you inspired me, that was cool. And like no one would say a mean word. Everyone would just be like, yes, that was authentic, you know? And that's the thing I always about Seattle is just so authentic. And I also would say that we have to adjust to the weather a lot. Like, I'm always laughing at people in white pants in Seattle. I'm like, obviously, you're not from here. Because <laughs> there is a puddle with your name on it. And the lack of makeup, love that. Like, comfortable clothing, layers, have to have them. Like, things get soaked. You need to layer up. Um, I love the fact that the bus is like this steam bath of humanity <laughs> that you, you know when you get on, it's just going to smell weird and it's going to be really moist and yet outside it is 34 degrees and raining and blowing wind. So you would rather be on the bus, but you do not want to stay on the bus because it's weird <laughs> feeling. But um, I feel like in some ways it keeps us kind of all in it together. And I find the people who are attracted to Seattle, Melissa being a great example, tend to be very heartfelt, interesting people. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about people who come here to make money at a major company and leave, which is another phenomenon. But the crew that I find that love it here like I love it here, I just love them. And I haven't found that in other towns. So Seattle, apartments, let's go. Here we go. Thank you. Bridget, thank you so much. If I run into you somewhere else, I will not make you just tell a story next time. I promise. Um, I had, uh, there were a couple of other folks who wrote in on our Facebook page talking about, you know, that phenomenon of, of community, of what it means to, to come here and to be here and to find your people. Um, there was a, a note from a woman named Suzanne who wrote, um, I've lived here since 1993, and every winter I think about living somewhere with more sun. I wonder if Suzanne had that thought today. Um, and she says, my kids even tease me about that, but at the end of the day, I could never leave my amazing family of friends I've made here. Um, and Tiffany also wrote, I've been here since 1993, a couple of long timers. It's the only place I wanted to move outside of staying in Colorado. I thought about leaving when my mom's health deteriorated, but we didn't. So I've done lots of travel back and forth. 
My parents understand that my friends here have become my family too, as well as an extended family for my kids. That notion of community matters a whole lot here. Um, our next storyteller has had kind of a unique experience because, and he's got something in common with Greg too, in that he spent time here, and then he left, and then he came back. Um, and there's an idea of community there, but it's, it's changed over the 30 years that he's spent here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the man with the moniker that I want to have made into a t-shirt. He, uh, he does one man shows all over the country and his moniker is the gay uncle. I would wear that t-shirt. Please welcome Jeffrey Robert. Scariest part is getting on the stage. I did it. Oh my God. Uh. So in 1987, I um, went through one of these big life changes. I, I grew up in Sacramento, California, which I hope nobody's been to. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I had a partner there. And after my partner died, I um, decided to just do a major upheaval in my life and move to Seattle and immediately get involved in another relationship. I don't recommend any of those things. And, and that didn't last. And, and I stayed in Seattle because I'd only been here once before and I remember thinking, what a beautiful city this is. This is a, a really gorgeous city. So I, I get to Seattle, this has happened, I have to start an entirely new life. Nobody knows me here, I have no family here, the friends I have, I've been friends for all of three weeks. So it's a good time to recreate myself, and I did. The first thing that I did when I moved out is um, after I broke up with the person I had the wrong, that's, any Lifetime movie can fill you in on that, but I, <laughs> But I bought a bicycle, and I suggest anybody who moves to a new city, buy a bicycle. First of all, picture what you're seeing here, divide it in half, divide that in half, and that's what I looked like back in 1987. Um, so if you want to stick around for 30 years, here you go. So, um, so I got a bicycle, and I got to see the city that way. I went every place on bus or on bike. I got to know all the different corners, and I thought, what a beautiful, beautiful city it is here. I was so impressed by the number of bookstores here. There used to be a bookstore in Pioneer Square that I would go to just to hang out. There was one on Broadway that I loved. People were reading books. I remember at one point calling somebody to fix some item in my house. I can't remember what, something that I have no idea how to fix. And some guy came over with his, you know, flannel shirt and took box and um, we got to talking as he was using pliers or something. And, and he said that he had uh, gone to college and his major was Russian literature. And I thought, that doesn't happen in Sacramento. You don't call a handyman and get somebody who studied Russian literature. And, and, and there were films here, and I'm a film fanatic. There were all kinds of movie theaters here. Coffee was everywhere. It was the worst Mexican food I'd ever had in my life. But no place is perfect, and it's gotten so much better. Thank goodness. But 
I remember one day I went to this coffee place that I, that I, there was one that I really liked. It was on Capitol Hill. It was on the hilly part of Capitol Hill. It was called AFLN. And I don't know if anybody remembers that. Um, and I doubt that anybody does. And it had some weird name that it stood for, just some Dadaist name, like a fine lingerie something. Um, and it was in this little house, and there were different rooms, and every room had tables, and the tables all had these vintage toasters on them. This is way before the toast fad of the, of the last year, whatever it was. Um, but every, every table had a different toaster on it, and you could buy toast, and then you could toast it at your table in these vintage toasters. I don't see you having the reaction that I had. <laughs> That was so thrilling. And I remember going, going up to where the, the person that was serving me stood behind her counter. And I saw that she was reading this book by Jean Genet, The Maids. Somebody is reading Jean Genet. I didn't know a soul in Sacramento who knew who that was. She's reading the book. And I said, oh, you're reading Jean Genet. She goes, well, actually, I'm doing the play of this. I'm in the play. Holy mackerel, where am I? This is like Oz for me. I am so excited. This was the, this was the place that, that I was falling in love with. I loved all the green. It was so comforting. I loved the water. I love rain. I know some people here don't love rain, but when I moved here, it seemed like everybody loved rain. We were in it together. We knew what we were in for. Even on the weather reports, they're like, oh, it looks like rain's coming back. Now they're like, oh, that was a bad day. But no, not then. <laughs> I love rain. I loved everything about it. Then in, 19, in 1992, after I'd been here for a while, I met what would become my husband. At the time, he was just some young guy that I dated. But um, I, I, I met him, and, and, and we created a, a, a life together that was based on going to hear music and going to see plays and going to art galleries and doing all of these things I had dreamed of doing my whole life. This city was so rich with all of those things. And you could go any place. It wasn't like now. You could get in your car and say, hey, we're going to go cross town. Okay, I'll see you in 10 minutes. It was, you know, that's how it was. It's not like now. And, and I, our life became focused on doing all of these things. We started to meet people. We started to meet musicians. We started to meet artists. Because it is like a small town, as somebody said. You go someplace, you always run into somebody you know. And then life continues on, and my parents are getting older. And my parents both end up with dementia, but at the time it was just my father. And I decided I, I wanted to be closer to them as it got to the end of life. I thought it's time to go back home and be with my parents, but I didn't want to be that close, so we moved to San Francisco. Um, and I'd always wanted to live in San Francisco, but by the time we got there in, in 1998, it was a different city, and it was so hard after being in Seattle all this time to be in this fast-paced city where everybody is just always going every place, and the, the rents were so expensive. Gosh, they were so outrageous, about half of what you pay in Seattle now. They, they were just out of control. And my father eventually passed away, um, and I, I remember coming here on a trip when we, when we 
We're living in San Francisco. And I remember coming here, staying in West Seattle at, friend's house, at a friend's house, getting on the bus, and we got on the bus in Pioneer Square. The bus pulls up, and everybody gets in a line to go through the front door of the bus. And they get on the bus, and they say hello to the bus driver. This was not happening in San Francisco. I promise you that. A bus would pull up, and a swarm of people would push everybody out of the way, and you'd climb through all the fresh spit and everything, and you got a, a seat and hope you weren't sitting on somebody. But it was very, very different. And then I remember the bus got to Ballard, and somebody got off the bus without paying. And there was an older man in the front. And after the man got off, he, he looks over his shoulder and he goes, Scofflaw. <laughs> who says Scofflaw <laughs> to somebody who didn't pay for a bus ride? Well, my, my, my partner and I were just so overjoyed by that. I think we knew we were going to have to move back to Seattle. And eventually he decided to go back to school, and so he applied for the UW and got in because he's the smart one in the family um, and the good-looking one. And, um, and um, we moved back here, and it was a little rough at first. The Seattle had grown a bit, kind of didn't recognize all of it, but it felt good to be home. This was the place of such comfort and such warmth, and, and we knew people up here, and the city was changing, and then... Our lives changed. We ended up um, taking care of a couple of great nephews. They became like our sons, so much so that we decided to adopt our own son. Um, this is kind of a theme here. And so we adopted our son when, when he was a very, very young teenager. So now we have anywhere from one to three to, we never knew how many teenagers were living in our house. They're, they're like gremlins. You give them. <laughs> Give them an energy drink, and then two hours later, your house is full of teenagers, and they never go away. So this became our life. So I've got a new life now with my husband. We've got this family, and we get, we get dogs, and, and we don't go anyplace because there's always some crisis. If you have teenagers, you, you, you're not going to leave the house. <laughs> you just, you're not going to do that. Unless you're picking them up from a rave at four in the morning. <laughs> so so th that happened. And, and, and then they, they got older. Uh, and they hadn't, they hadn't moved out and moved back in 12 times yet. But they, they, they were just on their initial move out. And, and my husband and I, as, you know, we've been together for, for over 25 years. And in that time, you sometimes have disagreements. And... So we had kind of split up, but we didn't have money to split up, so we stayed in the same house. Um, and we would, we, would, we would text each other. We were in, the, in rooms next to each other, and we'd text each other, did you feed the dogs? Yes, okay. That was, how we, that was our communication for about a week. Um, and then I decided that, that we needed to, you know, get a normal life. But I thought, I need to do something with my life. And instead of being this audience member and this this viewer of all this art. I had studied art in school. I decided I wanted to do some stuff, so I tried my hand at performing, and I tried my hand at 
stand-up comedy, and I tried doing a little uh, storytelling, and um, I, I did some art, and then I started producing shows, and then I was working with all kinds of drag queens and burlesque performers and musicians, and, and every riffraff you can name, I worked with them, and, <laughs> and this was my new life, and, and, I, and I loved it. it. It was a wonderful thing. Meanwhile, Seattle is changing rapidly. It is getting so congested. They're tearing down all of my favorite places. They're replacing them with like horrible, horrible places. I won't name them because I can't remember them. I'm old. <laughs> but they're out there, and I don't like it. And I don't want to make myself the most unpopular person in, in, in this room, but to me, Sports Day means I get to be alone in part of this city again. <laughs> I, I just don't remember people being into sports when I moved up here. I thought that was a great thing. So the city now is like everybody's got waving 12s around and getting in their, their big old cars and sitting in the freeway like it's a parking lot and there's shiny buildings and it doesn't feel that good. And um, But... There's still really good coffee. And the Mexican food has gotten like so good I can't afford it. And, and eventually, through an inheritance, we got a little bit of money and we made a down payment on a house in West Seattle. And the, the West Seattle house that we got, it's, it's little. I don't want to make it sound like it's a mansion. It's a little house, but... It has a creek, it has Longfellow Creek that runs right in front of it. And it has this trail that goes through like this little wooded area behind it. And, our, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to live. And there's a little bench in front by the creek. And I go out and sit on that bench with a book and I listen to the creek and I feel the shade of the tree and the breeze, it's like paradise. Now granted, two blocks down, it's like an open air drug market. <laughs> but that reminds me of California. So I'm home there and I can go the other direction and there'll be like coyote poop and stuff on the trail and, and, and I like it. And so now, I'm out uh, frequently, but I'm not watching, I'm performing, and I'm meeting this community of artists and musicians and every freak you can name, and they're my people. And, and the most important thing for me is to sit on that bench by the creek with a book and read. And, What's so wonderful about this town still is that people say, what are you going to do this weekend? And I say, I'm probably going to sit on my bench by the creek and read. And they say, oh, that sounds great. And that's the Seattle I love, and that's why I stay here. Thank you very much. Oh, Jeffrey, thank you so much. That idea of community, um, it, 
it's a big deal. It's it's a really, really important thing. Um, I watch my own daughter, who's five, make her own community. I mean, it's it's weird that she's, you know, she's becoming her own person. She has her own people. She has her own... She sees kids out at the grocery store that I've never seen before, and she's like, that's Ainsley, and that's Ella, and that's... She, like, has all these people. She has a community, but... It's part of what makes us who we are, I think, and that's why this place is special for a lot of us. Um, and our last storyteller of the evening is, um, it, he's thought a lot about what community means, about what connection to a place means, about what connection means, period. Um, he's a writer, he's lived here in Seattle for 15 years. Please welcome Michael Pereira. Good evening. I <clears throat> excuse me. I started putting this talk together the day after it was announced that someone who lives in Seattle is officially the richest person to have ever lived. <laughs> now, I'm going to guess he's not here in this room tonight. But if he is, could I have a ride home when this is over? <laughs> Worth a try. When I moved to Seattle in 2005, the idea of sharing a metro area with two of the richest people to have ever lived wasn't really a thing for me. I moved here from Dubai, where I was born in the early 80s, with the idea of converting my student visa into a work visa. And that's a process that took about six years. That's the version of the story that I tell at dinner parties and I put on my Tinder bio. It's really awkward to say about my girlfriend here, but never mind. <laughs> the version I tell at KUOW events is that it was six of the longest and most grueling years of my life. It cost me and my family our life savings, uh, paying for legal fees and filing fees. It forced me to work a terrible job for 18 months without pay, and it left me broken, jaded, and depressed, and burnt out to the point where I didn't even have the energy to think of packing up my bags and trying somewhere else. By that time in my life, Seattle wasn't really a home. And to be honest, Seattle wasn't even really Seattle. My idea of Seattle was a tiny little studio room in Shoreline that I could barely afford. Seattle was a master's degree in organizational psychology that I couldn't use and that I could never finish paying off. Seattle was a miserable and mind-numbing work-from-home transcription gig. And what this meant was I had to listen to recordings of focus group meetings, market research, and the most stupid reality television show interviews. Type them all out word for word and do this within a 24-hour turnaround. So this meant that I would work for about 20 hours straight and still have just about enough money for a single grocery trip at the end of it. And obviously, Seattle meant being too emotionally and mentally drained to even go out and try and make friends. And in the city of the Seattle Freeze, that's saying a lot. In fact, there was one year where the only Christmas card, well, not the only Christmas card, but one of the very few Christmas cards I received was from my immigration attorney's office. My attorney really did try to help, I think, and for paying her $375 an hour, yep, she really tried. But I have a very clear memory of being in her office one beautiful summer day. She has an office in downtown Seattle, 41st floor, and she has a great view of the city, in particular Pike Place Market. 
I was in her office. We were talking about how to you know, get my visa transferred or you know, some nightmare. But while we were having this discussion, the only thing I could think about was having looked out of her window and I saw Pike Place Market. And I saw all the tourists there doing their happy little tourist things, but just you know, being happy, enjoying Seattle. And I had to seriously ask myself if I, if I would ever become one of those happy people in Seattle. And all this, these were during the Obama years, the good years. Oh, man, the Obama years, those were good times. So you might wonder why I didn't leave Seattle, why I didn't just wipe the slate clean and start again. For me, that wasn't really easy. Yes, I was born in Dubai, but when I turned 18 years of age, I had to move off my parents' visa, so I lost all my residency rights there. My parents themselves, they're from Sri Lanka. It's a country I was not born in, a country I've never lived in, and a country I don't speak the language of. So we sunk everything into trying to make Seattle work. That the idea of pulling up all those roots and starting again, filling out some more forms, making empty promises to pay filing fees, it felt like it was too much. It felt like, for me, it felt like Seattle was always gonna be that studio room, and it was always gonna be those transcription jobs that I hated doing. Something that, something that I tried to do to try and make Seattle work was, ironically, to go to Pike Place Market. Not because I wanted to buy fish or anything, but because not really knowing anything about Seattle, it was the only place I knew to go. I just followed all the tourists, and they looked happy, so I thought, well, maybe I can be happy as well. <clears throat> and while I was there, in Pike Place Market, I had these few moments of just imagining that life, could, life in Seattle could really be more than that tiny studio room, or it could be more than those jobs that I hated doing. People, yeah, I mean, people were happy, but I could blend into that crowd, and I could feel connected to this thing that was bigger than me, this thing that people call Seattle and that I couldn't yet figure out what that meant. But inevitably, I would have to go home back to Shoreline, and I came to dread the number 41 northbound bus because it meant having to leave that place. It meant having to leave that place where people were happy and where that sense of escape and that sense of imagination just got slow, smaller and smaller with the hour-long drive back to Shoreline. And then it was back to that room. It was back to those jobs. And it was back to thinking, well, this is my life. Like it or not, it's the only thing I have. So part of my desperation to, again, try and make something about Seattle work was joining a local social media group in about 2012. Now, to be fair, this was a social media group in Seattle, so everybody there was really, really weird. <laughs> we met in Golden Gardens Park in the absolute pouring rain. That's how weird it was. And I had been in Seattle for seven years, but I didn't even know where Golden Gardens was up until that point. But it was, being there, it was the first time I had seen Seattle outside of that room. Or the first time Seattle was more than my attorney's office or those few moments in Pike Place Market. It was the Seattle of hipsters and nerds and cool people having free food and playing cards against humanity and making these awesome and terrible puns. And for the first time in almost seven years, I felt connected to these people who called Seattle their home. They didn't ask about my legal problems or all the paperwork that I had to do, which is the only conversations I had at that point. They just accepted me as one of their own, no questions asked. 
And for the first time in about seven years, I began to think, you know, maybe there's something more to Seattle than just always being in that room or doing the work I hated. People were happy, and I was one of them. And that was amazing. Another, another amazing thing happened was, was in 2014, when I started to do work that I really actually liked doing. I've always liked writing, but the idea that I could be paid to actually write for a living and then to consider myself part of Seattle's creative culture, it made me think that for the first time in years, I had a voice and a place in Seattle. And it absolutely blows my mind and it really does break my heart that for years I had given up on having either. But now when I tell people here in Seattle that I write for a living, they don't roll their eyes. They don't ask when I'm gonna, re when I'm gonna get a real job or if I wait tables. If I say I write for a living, they accept that. And in doing so, they accept me. I can go to just some random coffee shop in Seattle, and I don't even drink coffee, but I can go to any random coffee shop in Seattle, pop open my laptop and start typing, and I feel like I'm making myself at home. And that changed everything. In 2015, I finally had enough money saved to leave that tiny studio room in Shoreline for the last time. And I moved to a house that's a 15 minute walk away from the University of Washington campus. When I lived in Shoreline, it would take me about an hour to get from Shoreline to catch all the right buses that would take me to downtown Seattle. But then after I moved, in 2015, in 15 minutes, I could be on the UW campus, and I could be surrounded by people who went to UW, or going to UW, who are part of that community. And for years, I had envied them, just seeing them from afar, because I thought, if you went to UW, if you had anything to do with UW, you had your life made. Things just made sense if you went there. And then in 2015, I was there, me with my bad hair and my messy skin and my glasses. I looked exactly like a student. And that's who people just, again, accepted me. I could walk those 15 minutes to the UW light rail station and I could catch a train that would put me in downtown in 10 minutes. I could walk through the UW campus. I could see Mount Rainier with my own eyes. And for the first time, I felt like I was actually a part of Seattle, that I belonged to Seattle. And I began to figure that was why I stayed. Not so much because I didn't have the money to go anywhere or I didn't have the time to go anywhere, but because Seattle was always the place that I was going to be. And so now it's January 2018. It's been 15 years since I moved to the US. It's been 15, uh, 13 years since I came to Seattle. And so why did I stay? And sometimes I wonder. The traffic is terrible. The weather absolutely sucks. And if you don't drink coffee, there's really nothing to do here. But when I think of what I do for a living, and when I tell people what I do for a living, I can say it honestly, and I can say it with pride. And I think they see that. Many of my friends have had to leave Seattle because it's just become too expensive to live here. But out of all of us, I stayed. It's, the reasons still surprise me. The reasons are still unexpected. But I think about all those years that I didn't have a community, all those years that I didn't even have a sense of financial security, but I still stayed. So if the richest person to have ever lived is really in this room tonight, 
yeah, that's cool. I'll take that. But I'm not going to need a ride home because I think after a night like tonight, I can walk home and I'm going to enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. It's raining really hard outside, so maybe don't walk home tonight. <laughs> but in July, you will have a lovely walk home. I want to thank all of our storytellers uh, who got up on stage tonight and talked about why you stayed here. I loved hearing every one of your stories, um, and I've been privileged to hear each of them more than once, and I learn something every time you tell your story. So thank you all so much. Thank you for everybody who came out tonight to listen to those stories. Thank you for writing your answers to what makes you want to stay and what makes you want to go. Thank you to Theodore Off Jackson for giving us drinks and giving us a welcoming space to do this. Thank you very much for that. And please, if you have been thinking about why you stay here and you want to share that story with us, write to us on KUOW's Facebook page. We would love to hear your story. Hopefully we'll see you again soon. Stay dry and have a good night. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This Why We Stayed Here event took place at Theater Off Jackson on January 17th. KUOW's Jeannie Yandel served as MC. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recordings. You can hear the full event on our website, KUOW.org slash Speakers Forum. Tune in again soon and sign up for our podcast at your favorite podcast vendor. Good night.